Over 200,000 of the homeless people in the United States of America are women and girls. The most needed and understocked item in homeless shelters, feminine hygiene products. Joy Road Media is proud to tell you about the Clean Love Project. The Clean Love Project's mission is to help women and young girls feel clean, loved, and empowered by distributing clean love kits to alleviate their hygiene needs. Go to thecleanloveproject.org to find out how you can help. The Clean Love Project focuses on the Metro Detroit area, but it also distributes kits worldwide. If you are a female in need of a clean love kit, go to thecleanloveproject.org and request one today. Joy Road Media is a proud supporter of The Clean Love Project at thecleanloveproject.org. Welcome back to Gray Lakes Confidential. Hey, Mikey. Hello. How are you, Angie? I'm fantastic. How about you? I am uh, enjoying my time hanging out with you via Zoom right now. As we said on the last episode, we are recording two episodes back to back. So uh, if you want to experience life like Angie and I are, listen to last week's episode again and then listen to this one and you know that'll be just kind of like how it was for us <laughs> exactly yeah it, it's gonna be very hard for me to shift gears from all the silliness of the last episode to uh this episode's gonna be kind of a heavy one seems pretty on par for you yeah um, and i didn't mean i didn't mean that in a bad way like i didn't no. mean you know well, what i mean <laughs> you know i i gave you a list of a couple things I was thinking about doing, and I was actually kind of surprised that one of the things was the Ypsilanti Ripper. I was like, oh, well, for sure, that's what Angie's going to go for. But instead, you wanted to go for a mystery, and that is the disappearance of Northwest Orient Flight 2501. So, yeah, so this is a story where 58 people die. So it's not really going to be a... um, giggly happy one so all right yeah so aqua's one hit song barbie girl 77 (laughs) oh nope angie giggled two stars again two stars do not like i'm gonna jump into it because i've done a bit of research on this one uh most people of course have heard of the legendary bermuda triangle where mysterious incidents seem to occur in the atlantic ocean but you may not be familiar with the great lakes triangle uh are you familiar with it at all angie and i know you're up a lot on michigan folklore and mysteries and supernatural it feels like that's something that like is in my brain but i i wouldn't be able to tell you like where it's at or why it's up there Uh, It's an area on Lake Michigan just off of St. Joseph, where many strange things have happened over the years, but none may be quite as strange as the disappearance of Northwest Orient Flight 2501. Uh, 1950, the same year that Edward Van Winkle, a reporter for the Miami Herald, dubbed the mysterious area of water from Florida to Puerto Rico to the island of Bermuda, the Bermuda Triangle, another mystery was about to take flight pun intended, hundreds of miles north (laughs) at LaGuardia Airport in New York. 
St. Joseph is on. It's right by Benton Harbor. Okay, Lake like, Michigan side. Yeah, yeah, they're okay. like sister cities. Um, one is considered like <clears throat> the nice one, and another one is considered the not nice one. There was a comedy show in one of them, and when someone explained to me that one was nice and one wasn't nice, um, someone else in the audience explained to me that person's racist. So, um, uh, I, I, I don't. I I'm not that familiar with that side of the state other than okay. comedy things and um, me having that experience. Gotcha. Um, so I, I do want to be careful about mining this incident for content for the show, because I think one of the things I really admire a lot about the way you tackle these stories of horrible and mysterious incidents from Michigan's history and haunted folklore is you tend to really focus on who the people are, um, or at least start with who the people are. And I, I think it's like a natural empathy that you have for these stories that you do always keep in mind that this isn't just a, a cool ghost story. You know, these are, you know, stories that, involve real people. So I'm going to, I, I researched this trying to do a, what would Angie do type thing? And also because I listened to a couple of podcasts to uh, research this, the obscurities podcast and the crime and coffee couple podcast. They both covered the story and they both kind of really focused on the mystery and glossed over, you know, the people that were involved. Uh, so here are the people that were involved. Um, Flight 2501 was a Douglas DC-4. Uh, it's a four-engine propeller aircraft. Started production in 1942. And there are actually still some in service as of 2022. Uh, it's a very small plane by today's standards. Uh, and in fact, the commercial versions of it the entire flight crew was only three people. Uh, the flight crew for this flight were pilot Robert Lind, co-pilot Vern Wolf. Both were 35 years old and in top health. And Bonnie Ann Feldman, who was 24, and uh, she was their stewardess, as was the terminology back in 1950. Captain Lynn was born in Minneapolis. He graduated high school in 1934 and was hired by Northwest Airlines in May of 1941. During World War II, he flew cargo planes to Alaska for the U.S. Army. And in 1942, he was promoted to captain and his principal route was back and forth from his home in Minneapolis to New York. Uh, The following year, he married um, his longtime girlfriend, Margaret Wing. Uh, And when he died during this incident that we'll be covering, he didn't just leave Margaret behind, but uh, he, uh, both his parents outlived him. Uh, And he also left behind four sisters and two brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Vern Frank Wolf worked for Northwest airlines for just about as long as Robert Lynn, uh, he was a very accomplished pilot in his own right. Uh, flying was such a part of his life that he and his wife, Ruth, uh, and their child lived only two miles away 
from the St. Paul airport and Ruth would wait up for her husband every night, no matter how late it was um, just to greet him when he got home. They were such like a, a young in love couple uh, and reports say that she's likely the first family member to be notified that something happened on this night. Uh, she called the airport at midnight to ask if the flight had been delayed because Vern hadn't checked in and the voice on the other end just kind of told her that something was seriously wrong. An hour later, Vern's friend and coworker, uh, Captain Keith James and his wife showed up at the Wolf House and gave Ruth the bad news that the plane was missing. Yeah. And, you know, true to the times, there isn't a lot of information on Bonnie Ann Feldman. Uh, In fact, most places even report her age incorrectly. They say that she was 25, but she was actually uh, about a month and a half shy from her 25th birthday. Uh, She was unmarried. Um, We'll be covering that in a minute. And um, she left behind both of her parents uh, in Bay City, Wisconsin. There were 25 passengers on board, 27 women, 22 men, and six children. Three of the women were reported to have been pregnant. And this story just, oh, one of the male passengers was running late for the flight. And in fact, by the time he arrived, they already shut the door for the plane and he knocked on it, uh, hoping that they would still let him on board. And Bonnie Ann opened the door and allowed him to get on board. Mm. Like if he had just, you know, a minute later. Wow. Would have missed the flight and still been alive. So a moment ago, I said that Bonnie Ann Feldman was unwed. And the reason for that is that flight attendants or stewardesses, as they were known back in the day, were not allowed to be married in the 1950s. And, really? Uh, yeah. So here's the toxic masculinity part of the story. Here are some other requirements for f- stewardesses in the 1950s. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay. Is this going to make me angry? Of course it is. (laughs) They must be at least five foot two, but no taller than five foot eight inches. And depending on your height, you must weigh between 105 and 135 pounds. That is so tiny. Yeah. So if you're five, eight, you could weigh 135. But if you're five, two, you better be closer to 105. Uh, They had to wear a respectable length skirt, blouse, heels, pantyhose, gloves, jacket, girdles, and a hat. And they were allowed to take off their jackets while in flight, but they had to wear them on the ground, including inside the airports that were often not air conditioned in the 1950s. The airport in New Orleans, which is actually in Kenner, uh, Uh, Louisiana's Bishop Airport was notoriously brutal because of the heat and humidity. And they had to wear their jackets through the airports. Wow. Um, To this day, legacy airlines like American Northwest and United still make their flight attendants wear pantyhose. uh, The females, the males can wear them, but you know, (laughs) under their slacks, (laughs) if they want to feel fun or sexy. (laughs) Which, you know, I can understand and relate. Uh-huh. To. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you had to be 20 years old, but no older than 32 on your 32nd birthday. You would have to retire no matter how good you were at your job. They don't want any old ladies 33 years old <laughs> serving you a scotch. Yeah. Wow. I found this today. Here's ad copy from Eastern Airlines that really captures the sexism of the time. The visuals for this ad show 19 attractive women all looking fairly disappointed. And the copy reads in big text at the top, presenting the losers. And then underneath the picture of all the women, it says, pretty good, aren't they? We admit it. They're probably good enough to get a job practically anywhere they want, but not as an Eastern Airlines stewardess. We pass up around 19 girls before we get one that qualifies. If looks were everything, we wouldn't be so tough. Sure, we want her to be pretty, don't you? That's why we look at her face, her makeup, her complexion, her figure, her weight, her legs, her grooming, her nails, and her hair. But we don't stop there. We talk, and we listen. We listen to her voice, her speech. We judge her personality, her maturity, her enthusiasm, her resiliency and her stamina like for a second doesn't it think you're gonna say we talk to them and we listen like oh you want to make sure that you have nope we just want to make sure they have pretty voices <laughs> like, it's so I <sighs> that's a, a real ad to get people to fly eastern airlines like, hey hey doll face that's you're, so gross. You're five foot three, weighing in at 107 pounds. Yeah, bright blue eyes, blonde hair, legs that won't quit. What's your <laughs> name? My name's Melissa. <laughs> you're one of the 19. <laughs> okay, I'll go get a job at a different airline. No problem, Dalface. You're number 19. <laughs> I hate to see you go, but I love to watch you go. I hate all of this. I know, right? It's awful. (laughs) Flight 2501 was a transcontinental service between New York and Seattle, and it disappeared on the night of June 23rd, 1950. It left LaGuardia and was scheduled to have a layover in St. Paul, but it never made it. The plane was, as I said in the beginning, a DC-4, a super reliable plane used both commercially and for the military. This particular aircraft was mechanically sound, having just recently been given the conversion from a cargo to a passenger airplane and given an upgrade of new parts and engines. The 55 passengers were maximum capacity, but it still was not over the flight weight limit. There was a storm reported developing over Lake Michigan, but Captain Lind flew this route for over five years, and it was nothing out of the ordinary for him. Eastbound aircraft reported severe turbulence over Lake Michigan, struggling to maintain correct altitude. ATC air traffic controller thought both aircrafts would pass over Battle Creek. At 9.33 p.m., a squall line Uh, which is a line of thunderstorms at the edge of a cold front that can create water spouts, tornadoes, heavy winds, and lightning formed over Lake Michigan. 
three flights were ordered to turn around, but the rest that were out there flew south um, around the southern edge of the squall line. But flight control, for some reason, did not tell Flight 2501 about this. Almost an hour later, flight control, so we're about 1030 or so, flight control ordered uh, flight 2501 to lower altitude to avoid turbulence and another airplane. At 1051 p.m., flight 2501 was reported over Battle Creek. And if you're not that familiar with the geography of the state of Michigan, that's probably, what would you say, about, I'm going to guess about 60 miles from the coast of um, the west coast of Michigan. Yeah, Battle Creek is pretty, it's pretty centralized. It's more. Yeah, maybe it might be more about 100 miles. It's a little, it's a little more west. Like if you're in Detroit, Battle Creek is closer to the west side of the state, but it's kind of centralized okay um it's about i would say 45 minutes to an hour northwest i'm I'm sorry southwest of lansing oh okay it's uh near kalamazoo yeah i i in my mind kalamazoo and battle creek are really really close to each other they are they are quite close yeah yeah so at 10:51, it was over Battle Creek, and they said they expected to be over Milwaukee at 11:37. Um, at 11:13, Captain Lind radioed and requested descent to 2,500 feet cruising altitude, uh, but did not indicate why, and uh, the request was denied. And this was the final contact that anyone had with the plane. Air traffic control as far as Madison, Wisconsin, uh, afterwards tried to radio the plane, but there was no answer. So the plane, you know, Captain Lynn flying into a storm, wanted to descend, which I kept trying to read and find out why he would want to do that. Like, it seems like it makes more sense to try to fly over a storm. I don't know if he felt like maybe he was in the clouds and didn't feel like he could get safely above. So he's going to try his odds of flying under. I know a lot of people are worried about like lightning hitting planes, but lightning hit planes all the time Mm -hmm. and they don't do that much damage. In fact, they probably do more damage to planes nowadays with all of the, you know, communication. Yeah. Like back then, yeah, back then you couldn't really do that much damage to a plane you know, unless it hit an engine or whatever, mm-hmm. but um, so yeah, it, it still doesn't make sense because air pressure, you know, there's a lot of updrafts and downdrafts. Um, I, I couldn't find anything that explained why someone would want to fly beneath a storm. Okay. So, so yeah. when, when you said that that plane was like the only plane that wasn't notified of the storm, like, was there any information as to why they weren't notified? Like, was it an oversight? They just forgot? Like, like, how does that happen? I I don't know. I couldn't find any explanation of why they didn't tell them like, Hey, there's a storm of brewing. Yeah. Um, 
no, re, no one can get in touch with the plane by radio. And the next day, June 24th, it was determined that the aircraft must be down because they wouldn't have had enough fuel to still be in the air. Lake Michigan was scoured the next day, and it was determined that flight 2501 most likely went down 18 miles northwest off of Benton Harbor. Uh, and the only sign of anything was an oil slick in the water. Uh, it was the most horrendous airline disaster of its time. And to this day, it remains one of the most mysterious airline disasters of all time. Air Force planes from Selfridge joined in the search for the wreckage, but found nothing. There was no sign of the flight aside from a few small pieces of wreckage and body parts found by the Coast Guard cutter, the Woodbine. An additional oil slick was found in the water with air bubbles coming up. So they thought maybe the bulk of the wreckage was down there and it was captured air. Divers went down to investigate, but found nothing. The silt and mud layer on the bottom of Lake Michigan was estimated to be about 30 feet deep. And the water was so muddy after that storm, the divers could only see about eight inches in front of them. A week later, things got even more ghastly as female body parts washed up onto the shore. Beaches from South Beach to South Haven had to close for nine days because body parts started washing ashore more and more. More small chunks of plane like uh, seat cushions, armrests, parts of the floor and anything that could float began to wash up, even luggage from the passengers. At first, it was assumed that maybe there was a fire, but none of the pieces of human and plane showed any sign of fire damage at all. So crashing into the water wasn't likely because it couldn't make a DC-4 disintegrate like apparently this plane had. So no one knew what possibly could have happened, but people began to speculate. An engineer from Douglas Air, the manufacturer of the plane, believed that the debris that they did find showed that the plane somehow must have ended up upside down when it hit the water, um, which, you know, maybe I, I, he's the only person to really come up with that theory. A witness in South Haven reported that that night she heard a plane circling over her house repeatedly before hearing a loud explosion. She thought that maybe the plane got lost in the storm and was trying to find a place to land and then exploded. But since then, experts have uh, determined that the drastically changing wind patterns of the storm could have carried the sound of the plane Mm. towards her home and then away from it. So it would have sounded like the plane was circling, but it was just how the wind was carrying the sound. And the boom she heard might not have been an explosion, but the sound of a plane crashing into the water. And maybe it's unlikely, but maybe the changing of headwinds and tailwinds could have made it that the plane did reach a speed so fast, uh, despite the fact that you had this very seasoned pilot that maybe it it could have hit the wave so fast that it disintegrated on impact. Um, Others cite the fact that there was a flash of lights uh, that were seen in the sky 
as proof that there was a mid-air explosion, but the lack of fire damage led some, um, and the fact that if there was a mid-air explosion, you probably wouldn't have had oil slicks in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, so that made other people, um, brought them to otherworldly conclusions, uh, UFOs. Okay. So back up to the dead bodies, mm-hmm. body parts. Yep. Were, I realized that DNA wasn't what it is now, but were any of those body parts ever identified as being the actual victims? Like, could their families bury them and have some sort of closure with that? Well, true to form for me covering stories, there's going to be some horrible chapter about the graves. Okay. So we'll get there. Okay. Other question. If a plane explodes midair, wouldn't like the pieces of the plane kind of like be floating on the surface of the water? I don't know. I, I, I've never been in a plane crash. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know because it makes you wonder I have my own theory and this kind of. But also if it exploded, if it exploded midair, then the body parts and the pieces of the plane that were found would have char marks. They would have like fire right. marks on yes. them. So yes. that was no make fire sense damage he, at all. Yeah. Huh? My personal theory is that it did hit the water. It's one of those things like, um, you know, most car accidents happen within five miles of your home. It's because, you know, you're so used to driving in that area that you stop paying attention or whatever. So maybe the fact that Captain Lind was so seasoned and familiar with this, maybe he underestimated the power of the storm. And if you're having like changing headwinds and tailwinds, there's a reason why if you take a flight east, you get there a lot quicker than if you're taking a flight west because the tailwinds will push the plane along. So if he was flying into headwinds because he was headed west and then he, you know, the air from the storm all of a sudden turned into a tailwind, it could have propelled him forward Mm -hmm. quite a bit. And just because he was denied descending to 2,500 feet doesn't mean that he didn't just go ahead and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. He might've been flying lower than he was supposed to. And, you know, maybe a downdraft along with a tailwind maybe shot his plane down and forward. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it did hit the water. And so did planes, and did planes then, this might seem like a stupid question, but did they have those black boxes in them in the 50s not, that not you could? Then. Yeah, no. Okay, so so there's no record of what actually happened on board. Right. And the fact that even though there were all these search parties, like I, there were multiple Coast Guard ships and there were all the uh, planes from Selfridge Air Force Base, they didn't find 
seat cushions and body parts floating in the water. So they had to have come from somewhere. And it's most likely that they came from underwater and they bobbed up. Right. You know? So that's why I think the most logical explanation is that it was there, but we didn't have the sonar capabilities that we have nowadays. Um, and that's why we couldn't find it. But um, there are other theories. Here's the, in my opinion, the most fantastic one. I'm very skeptical when it comes to supernatural and, you know, alien things. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely one of those X-Files. I want to believe people. Yeah. But um, so the area that flight 2501 disappeared is known by some as the Great Lakes Triangle near one of the corners of this area dubbed uh, the Great Lakes Triangle is the Lake Michigan Stonehenge. It was discovered in 2007 and appears to be very deliberately set of stones kind of resembling Stonehenge, uh, but it's beneath the waters of Lake Michigan. And on one of the stones, there's a carving of a mastodon, uh, which means that these stones could actually predate actual Stonehenge and is a mystery because it's also the only indication that people were living in that area when mastodons walked the earth 9,000 years ago. So that's sort of, you know, one of the elements of a supernatural cause of this, yeah. being, uh, uh, you know, a Great Lakes Triangle thing. The supernatural theories, uh, UFO enthusiasts talk about this one a bit because uh, nearly two uh, hours after the final communication with Flight 2501, Two on-duty police officers witness a strange red light over Lake Michigan that kind of looked like a sun setting, and then it abruptly just disappeared. So, um, you know, people are like strange lights over, you know, where it should have happened. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean... <sighs> Storms, reflection of on the water can make for weird light phenomena. Like I said, I'm I'm very skeptical of that. Uh, Regardless of what happened, the investigation was officially closed soon after due to lack of information. Unofficially, though, the investigation continues 74 years later. Best-selling adventure author, the late Clive Cussler, uh, the James Cameron of the literary world, led a private investigation for years. And in fact, he is the creator of NUMA, the National Underwater and Marine Agency. Uh, In 2004, NUMA cited uh, a 500 square mile area as the probable location for the wreck. But despite modern sonar equipment, none of the wreckage has been located. It's been 74 years, even though that's a pretty large area, they might still be off. You know, Yeah. we have to go with the records that were kept from 1950 and who know, you know, and, and we don't really know what Captain Lind did do. You know, yeah. we don't know if he tried to fly around the storm to the north. 
We don't know if he tried to fly around the storm to the south. We don't know if he did try to fly under it or fly through it. You know, we don't know. So, you know, there's a lot of speculation that goes into this. Um, right. Uh, here's a little side note about Clive Cussler that I, I, I loved and I, I wanted to share because I can relate to it. He'd write himself into his novels. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's known uh, one of his best selling series. Uh, and he's a New York Times, but he was a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, one of his series was about a character named Dirk Pitt, who worked for Numa. And since Cussler helped form Numa, he'd show up as a character in his own works of fiction. Uh, both my parents read a lot of Clive Cussler stuff. Uh, I haven't, but I kind of want to now. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, when I saw a movie that I loved because my parents really encouraged me to read, they would buy me the novelization of the movie. And then I would write a novelization of the sequel to a movie with a <laughs> character that I would play if the sequel was actually made from my novelization. <laughs> so I, uh, Clive Cussler and I both had the same ego of putting ourselves in our own work. I love it. Yeah, that's funny. In 2008, the MSRA, which is the Michigan Shipwreck Research Association, they found a mass grave in St. Joseph. And the remains of the passengers were buried there without the family's knowledge or permission. Official documents show this is because it would have been too gruesome to let families of the survivors or of the survivors there were no survivors families of the passengers know that they found chunks of people but had no way of identifying Whoa. them oh um, my god other people point out too that the korean war started shortly after this disaster and that probably took a lot more of the attention away from people there are actually two mass graves on the west coast of michigan and uh, within the last 20 years or so, both have been given um, really nice um, memorial monuments there to commemorate all 58 people who were on board the flights. So, yes, DNA research have has since determined, you know, who is there. So did they find all of the victims or just? I do not know. Okay. Yeah. Valerie Van Heest from Holland, Michigan, wrote a book about this called uh, The Fatal Crossing, The Mysterious Disappearance of NWA Flight 2501 and the Quest for Answers. Uh, and this is based on research that she started doing back in 2004. Uh, she continues to lead the investigation for more information, even though this book came out 10 years ago, or I, as you pointed out, it's 2024 now. So this book came out 11 years ago, <laughs> but this is a passion of hers. This isn't just a, Hey, I'm going to write a novel about this. This is her life's work. This is her calling. This is something she is still involved with today. She continues to lead the investigation. Uh, investigation for more information uh, her theory is that the wreckage has not been found because searches uh, searchers are looking in the wrong spot like I said um, 
she theorizes that the pilots may have tried to fly around the storm when they were denied permission to fly beneath it instead of trying to go uh, through it. She points out that we have no way of knowing what Captain Lind did decide to do. So it's really hard to narrow down even a 500 square mile area on Lake Michigan. Cause you know, Lake Michigan is a huge, huge body of water. Yeah. Um, so I just yeah. Googled it. Um, so Lake Michigan is approximately 180 miles wide, 307 miles long, more than 1600 miles of shoreline. It averages 279 feet in depth and it reaches 925 feet at its deepest point. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. pretty massive. The yeah. area is 22,000 square miles. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, the NUMA and the MSRA in searching for Flight 2501, they've uncovered so many shipwrecks and other airline disasters that, you know, haven't been found. So there are so many vessels at the bottom of Lake Michigan that haven't been found yet. So, you know, even with sonar equipment being as advanced as it is now, this is still a huge area that people are talking about. Um, Like I said, uh, Valerie Van Heese book came out in 2013. It has a lot of positive reviews. One of the negative reviews kind of going along with last week's episode was a family member uh, of one of the passengers who did not like the fact that she kind of speculates what was going on in the in the plane with the passengers and, you know, really dramatized things. But I think you kind of have to do that in a story like this to humanize it as much as possible, because otherwise we're just talking about a missing plane instead of Mm -hmm. 58 people who died tragically. So I support her editorial decision to, you know, talk about parents holding their young children who were scared because of course that happened. Right, right. Most recently, she had computer experts in Grand Rapids create simulation of the storm on that evening in 1950 to conduct a series of simulations on where the plane may be based on what experts say Captain Lind may have chosen. Uh, But to this day, nothing substantial has been found of flight 2501 besides the floatable pieces from the plane and uh, some of the luggage of the passengers and the parts of the passengers. Um, And to this day, it is one of the biggest unsolved airline mysteries in U S history. There is a Facebook group dedicated to this mystery, and there's actually an exhibit about it at the Michigan Maritime Museum in South Haven. There is a really terrible comedy show in Saugatuck that uh, (laughs) maybe one day I'll take just so I can go down. Uh, I have been to that museum before. Like I said on the last episode, my dad worked for the Army Corps of Engineers, and he was very fascinated with the um, 
you know, uh, with ships and stuff like that. So I've been to every historic fort and maritime museum in the United States that my dad felt comfortable taking us to uh, while we were growing up. So that's awesome. While, while other kids were going to Disneyland, I was going to see <laughs> I Civil have war reenactors. I have such an appreciation, though, for those like maritime museums and stuff now that I'm older and I can really like understand, you know what I mean? Like going to stuff like that as a child and, you know, for like field trips and stuff for school, it was like, OK, like it didn't mean a lot now that I can understand like the things that happened and you know what I mean? And like really appreciate the lives of 58 people that are no more because of stuff like this. Like I, I, I just, I love, I love those museums now. I, I just, I have such an appreciation for them. There's, they're so cool and so needed for, for exactly this reason, you know? Yeah. And I definitely recommend people, if you were interested in the story at all, please check out that Facebook group uh, because you also do find like testimonials from the family members of the people that were on board, uh, including photos. So you do get to know more about the people that were involved in this story because, you know, it is a, a real tragedy. So, yeah. 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 I'd never heard of that before. I never heard of that story. Yeah. I never yeah. heard of that story. I've never heard of the, I'm pretty sure I've heard of the, the Michigan triangle. Um, but I've also never heard anything about Michigan Stonehenge, which I'm going to need to explore more. Well, do you want you want the skeptic point of view on both of these things? OK, the Great Lakes Triangle also happens to be one of the most traveled parts of Lake Michigan. So are there a, a huge number of shipwrecks there? Yeah. Because there's also a huge number of ships that have traveled through there. It's like you're going to see more accidents on I-75 than you will the street that I live on. Right. Because more cars are on I-75 than yeah. the street that I live on. So, yeah. Um, and then the Michigan Stonehenge, the person who discovered it is keeping the location secret for some reason. So no one can go and verify the authenticity of the carving of the mammoth and stuff like that. So it could be a hoax. Um, I mean, it's an elaborate hoax. Yeah. (laughs) If it is a hoax, but I mean, if I discovered something really cool, I would probably want people to go see it so they can, yeah. you know, say, oh, my God, Mike Bobbitt discovered this thing that's super cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting me uh, helm another episode. I really appreciate it. That was interesting. I'm yeah. I'm I love stuff like that. Um, so the the Michigan Triangle goes from Ludington to Manitowoc and then Benton Harbor. And then back up to Ludington. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. They're saying that there's been first reported UFO sighting was in 1913 in that area. Yeah, I always wondered how far back UFO sightings went. Yeah. I I always thought it was kind of like a, um, 
for some reason, I always thought they kind of began around the 1950s, but that's interesting. Yep, 1913. And then it says that uh, the Thomas Hume um, uh, sunk in that area in 1891. So that was a long time ago. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, I was uh, four years old back then. Well, if people want to leave a voicemail, what should they call? They can call 313-489-0739. And thank you to Doug for leaving us the voicemail on the last episode that we ended the last episode with. Uh, Doug is very active on the Facebook group Mm -hmm. that you should be active on as well. And uh, I... uh, you know, he's also been very complimentary about my uh, my comedy stylings. So, uh, yes, we know that I Doug wasn't Doug. leaving that uh, negative review. Doug is fantastic. Doug's a five star kind of guy. That's what it, you know what? An extra star to grow. Doug is six out of five stars. Doug is six out of five. I'd, I'd even push him to like a seven or an eight out of five. Yeah. OK, we don't do math around here. All right. This is my show, Mike. I can do whatever I want with numbers. If you can have a fifth, third bank, Doug can have a nine fifths star rating. <laughs> I think I just decreased his amount of stars. I don't know. Nine out of five star rating. <laughs> hey, yes, Doug, leave I'm, us a- I, Doug, I'm giving you 10 out of five. <laughs> I don't know why Andy's... And he's been so withholding of these (laughs) bonus stars, but uh, I'm giving you all five bonus stars. (laughs) Um, We got to get Doug on the show. He's fantastic. So we'll make that happen. Let's not go too far. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're great, but you're not that great. All right. Let's keep Doug at a safe distance. Okay. (laughs) I'm very famous, Angie. Don't forget, I've been on the WTF podcast with Mark Marin. That's true. Yeah, that is so, true. Well, I um, hung out with Tom Dalden um, last week and also um, David Tell bought me a smoothie once. So. And I had breakfast with Lonnie Love, so I used to be friends with Dustin Diamond. <laughs> no, I'm not bragging about that. So. <laughs> that could go a couple I'm of different saying ways. that to elicit sympathy. <laughs> you got it buddy yeah. alright leave us a voicemail 313-489-0739 you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram email us greatlakesconfidential at gmail.com yeah and also the most dangerous part of flying is uh, take off and landing in the time uh, the few minutes immediately before and after uh, while you're in flight it is super super safe uh, and no plane has ever crashed because of turbulence. So uh, if your plane ride gets a little rocky, uh, it's fine. Just uh, pretend that you're in a massage seat at the mall because everything's going to be OK. And there's no deer up there unless you're over the Michigan Triangle. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> and one of those nearsighted aliens thought they were uh, teleporting up a cow. And next thing <laughs> you know, they got Bambi there and. You know, she's midair and uh, 747 comes right at her and splat. You hit a deer. 
Now, what are you going to do when you got venison chopped up all over your windshield of your airplane? Then, you know, the plane's going to go down. You know, you don't want to risk uh, crash landing in uh, Chicago. Uh, mm. Those people, they don't take kindly that kind of thing. So you need to just land it as soft as possible in Lake Michigan and hope for the best. You know, best case scenario, the water from the lake washes off all them deer guts. Okie dokie. I'm going to go <laughs> drink a burner. So you have yourself a heck of a night there, Angie. Be safe out there. Watch for flying deer. <laughs> and text us when you get home. Bye. Bye bye.